ages three to uh, second grade, you're dismissed to children's church. <clears throat> and we're in Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 to 14 today. We're going to be looking at the consequence of compromise. Rebecca Ellis says this, For the past eight years, Kim McLean has been a research scientist at the Cooperative Institute for Mesoscale uh, Meteorological Studies. She has traveled to hard-hit cities and towns to understand why people got killed in storms that she says really should be survivable as long as people can get to the right shelter. In an interview with NPR, McLean was asked to explain why people failed to heed weather warnings. We give people days of alert uh, that their general region may be threatened, but people are really savvy about this. They know that even if a region in general is at risk, that doesn't necessarily mean that there will be a tornado that hits their house. So people wait until uh, things get quite close until they make those calls. For tornadoes, they typically wait until there's a, under a warning, and then there's just a couple of minutes. Then all they can really do is shelter in place. People are doing what we call confirming the threat. <clears throat> and they do this on a continuous basis. They'll be watching, and maybe they'll go get their children, but they won't necessarily take shelter until things get a little bit closer. So um, I'm guilty of this, <laughs> confirming the threat. You've heard me t tell this story, I I'm sure, before, but uh, when we lived in Missouri, you know, that's uh, Tornado Alley out there in Missouri, and, and uh, th I was working on a project one day outside, and Judy with the boys were outside too, and all of a sudden the, the tornado sirens go off, you know, woo, you know, and, um, and Judy's like, boys, come, quick, and off they go into the basement, and I'm like, I'll be right there. I wanted to keep working on this project, so I looked around. The sky's not green or yellow, you know. I don't see any uh, clouds that are twisting around, so I just keep working, and then the sirens go off, and I'm like, I'm good. And then, uh, you know, a little bit later, the sirens go off again, so I just confirm the threat. I stop. The, the sky's not green or yellow. There's no twisting clouds, and uh, I just keep working, and uh, the sirens stop, and, and uh, I never went into the basement. Uh, I didn't even get to see a tornado, you know? So, anyhow. Uh, but I was just confirming the threat, right? I just, I wanted to wait to the last possible moment. If I saw spinning clouds, then I would go into the basement um, and be safe. But Judy was down there and safe already, so with the boys. But Now, when we got to Southern California with wildfires, it was a different story for me. That scared me, because the wind can shift so quickly, and that flames can jump roads and everything so fast. One of the things that they recommended when we had moved out there is that you keep a box with all of your important papers and, and all your valuables that you don't want to be lost in a fire in a bin. And we did. And that was ready to go. Uh, so photo albums, you know, important papers, birth certificates, social security cards, all that kind of stuff, well, we kept in this bin and were ready and prepared in case the, the fires would come. And, you know, the closest they ever got to us when we lived there, you could see the glow over the hill just south of us. Just disconcerting. And Levi and I were walking. I was walking. He was riding his bike one day um, when we could see the, the glow the one evening. And he, sa he says to me, I, I never wanted to move to California. <laughs> and he's just a little fella. Uh, he was four. Um, and I was like, it's going to be all right. <laughs> just reassuring him. But he's like, he saw that glow. And he's like, I never wanted to move to California. <laughs> but now, you know, now that we're back from California, he's like, I want to go back to California. So um, things change. But... <laughs> 
Every one of us can probably remember a time when we did not heed the warning signs. Perhaps it was a medical warning sign that we didn't heed and we had to have a surgery. Maybe it was a financial warning sign that we didn't heed and then we got into some trouble financially. Uh, Some of you, most of you, are going to remember Y2K, right? Did you do any preparation for that? No, some, some people are like, it's not a big deal. You know, if the computers all die and, and everything goes down, it'll be all right. You know, we're just not going to worry about it. Some people did prepare, like, over-prepared. And I think they're still eating food that they stored from Y2K today. And they just had a whole bunch, you know, stockpiled. And then uh, how about COVID-19 pandemic? Were there some uh, warnings that you needed to heed and you didn't? And um, what was the result of not heeding those warnings? that we have come up against. And so the warnings that Lot and his family received were not just signs, but actual verbal warnings. How would they respond to these warnings? As we'll see, Lot and his family were considered righteous, which is why they were being warned about the coming destruction of Sodom. When Lot tried to stop a morally offensive act from happening to his two guests, and when he tried to warn his, fa- his future son-in-laws, um, they rejected him and his warnings. And the reason this happened is that Lot had compromised his beliefs, his witness. He was not taken seriously because he had not led his family well as the spiritual head of the household. The citizens of Sodom did not respect him because he had compromised. And what we'll learn from this passage of Scripture today is this, and it's our big idea, is that compromise weakens our witness. When we compromise, it weakens our witness. And so as we think about that, and and I want you to just uh, dwell on that a little bit, let me just uh, commit the message to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you. We come to you as people who can say we have compromised. And we can look back and see how that's weakened our witness and trying to talk with others, Lord God, trying to warn them. And so we confess that before you today. We ask that you would... Just forgive us in the times that we have compromised our witness, our beliefs. Lord, strengthen us to hold to the truths of your word. Lord, today I pray that you would speak through your servant, that your people would hear your voice today as we look into your word. And we just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verses 1 to 3, we see that there are some welcomed guests into Lot's uh, household. And so let's look at uh, those three verses in in, uh, Genesis chapter 19. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and uh, spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. So what we see here is the angels arrive. Now, we left them last week um, where they had just left uh, to head down to Sodom. uh, and, And the Lord... Uh, Christ remained there with Abraham, and uh, Abraham was pleading for, um, you know, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, that whole um, plain. So the narrator tells us that the angels arrive in the evening. Now, the journey from Abraham's camp to Sodom would have been between 18 to 20 miles. Um, So these guys are not going to span that distance in just several hours from mid-afternoon when they were there with Abraham to the evening. 
So it, it wasn't humanly possible for them to be able to do that. So there's two explanations for this time frame. The first one is that there were several days that have passed between the angels leaving in Genesis 18.22 and their arrival in Genesis 19.1. That's certainly possible. There could be a time frame here, a gap in time uh, between the ending of chapter 18 and the beginning of chapter 19, or the, the middle part, I should say, of chapter 18 and the beginning of 19. It's also conceivable that being heavenly beings, they could have made the trip supernaturally in just a couple of hours. I think about Philip, right? He's on the road, uh, and, and he meets up with this Ethiopian eunuch, and, and uh, he shares with him about the gospel of Jesus Christ with the scroll that he had brought, uh, gotten in Jerusalem. <clears throat> and as he's uh, riding along, he realizes that, what's stopping me from being baptized? Well, it was just water. Well, they sell some water alongside the road, and so Philip and this Ethiopian eunuch, they go down, and, they, and, and Philip baptizes him, and all of a sudden, God transports Philip like over towards Caesarea, on the road to Caesarea. And it's like, this can happen. God is capable of doing this. And so these, uh, these two angels certainly have the capabilities of just being transported down to Sodom, and they're able to do it in that short period of time. Fortunately, the time frame is not what's most important in this passage of Scripture, so we're not going to spend a bunch of time there talking about it or trying to figure out which one it was. The angels obviously have to enter through the gateway, which is where Lot is sitting. And we see that in the second half of verse 1. The fact that Lot is sitting in the gateway is significant. Kyle and Dillich in their commentary say the gate, generally an arched entrance with deep recessed, uh, which is deep recessed in seats on either side, was a place of meeting in the ancient towns of the east. And so the gateway was where uh, the inhabitants of the city would meet to discuss what was going on in the city. Uh, it was a place where business transactions would take place. Their legal matters were discussed there and, and handled, and political affairs were taken care of. And so this was where the leaders uh, of the city would gather together and basically listen to the concerns of those <clears throat> citizens of the city. Walk, he goes on and says, the gate was the physical symbol of collective authority and power. And so this allow, uh, shows us that Lot is potentially one of the leaders of Sodom. He had come into authority and power there uh, as one of their authorities. And so the first principle that we want to look at today is this. God is pleased when we hold to the truths of his word and not compromise. Now, this principle is evident throughout this passage of Scripture. Here in verse 1, it'll be revisited again in verse 3 and in verse 8. So just kind of keep, uh, keep this in the back of your mind, and it'll pop back up on the screen too. <clears throat> but God is pleased when we hold to the truths of his word and not compromise. In verse 1, the principle is found indirectly and not directly. In fact, we have to look back to Genesis chapter 13 to see the beginning of Lot compromising. Genesis chapter 13, verses 10 and 11 tell us this. First, Lot looked at Sodom. So Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt toward Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. I like that little side note. In the print. Yeah, it, it was beautiful before it was destroyed. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. Now, second, Lot pitched his tents near Sodom. So he saw it first, but now he pitches his tents near there, and we see that in Genesis chapter 13, verses 12 and 13. It says this, Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. So the narrator knows this. I'm sure that Lot knew this as well. Third, Lot moved into Sodom. Genesis chapter 14, verse 12. They also carried off Abram's nephew, Lot, and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. 
So you see this compromise taking place. He looks at it, it looks good. He goes down, he lives close to it. He knows that they're wicked. He still compromises and goes, I'm going to go live with them. And now we see, finally, that Lot has become part of the leadership structure in Sodom. And Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city, Genesis 19, 1b. So Lot knew the spiritual condition of the people of Sodom, and he willingly compromised on the commands of God in order to live there. It would have been different if God had called Lot to live in Sodom and be a witness for him, but that was not the case. Now, I like this. Um, it comes out of Wearsby's commentary. God put Joseph in Egypt, Daniel in Babylon, and Esther in Persia, and their presence turned out to be a blessing. See, there's the difference. Like, they had truly influenced those that they served and lived among. Worldliness is not a matter of physical geography, but of heart attitude. Did you hear that? That's a powerful statement. Worldliness is not a matter of physical geography, but of heart attitude. And Wearsby goes on, Lot's heart was in Sodom long before his body arrived there. No doubt he got his first love for the world when he went to Egypt with Abraham and never overcame it. We saw that in uh, uh, Genesis 13, verses 10 and 11, where he sees the plain, and it's like, he's like, it's, it looks beautiful like the Garden of Eden and like what I saw in Egypt. That's where I want to live. So he makes these compromises uh, and, and what he's doing and where he's living. Abraham had separated himself from the evil inhabitants of the plains, which enabled him to have a close relationship and communion with God. But that wasn't the case with Lot. So have we compromised the truths of God's word? in order to enjoy the things of this world. You know, we can compromise the truths of God's word with our speech. I can't tell you how often I've heard people say, cussing's not a sin, or cussing won't keep me out of heaven, or it won't send me to hell. And this is just a, a way for us to justify our desire to use foul, filthy language. But what does God's word say? That we want to hold to the truths of God's word, not compromise. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Paul continues to write to the Ephesian believers in chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because uh, these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather, but rather thanksgiving. Writing to the Colossian believers, Paul says this in chapter 3, verse 8, but now you, uh, you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, malice, slander, their speech, and filthy language from your lips. James says this in his book, uh, in chapter 3, verse 10, out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, brothers, this should not be. And then Jesus, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, tells us this, but I tell you that men will... Uh, have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. It's more than just cussing here. I want you to understand. It's like to every careless word that we use, we are going to have to give account of when we stand before Jesus. So we can compromise with our speech. We can compromise the truths of God's word by our actions. We may act one way while at church, and we may act completely different at home or at work or with our friends. Perhaps we've taken something that doesn't belong to us. That's another action <clears throat> where we compromise God's word. We can compromise the truths of God's word by our attitudes. We may harbor bitterness towards someone else. We may be unwilling to forgive someone who has hurt us, whether physically, emotionally, mentally, or verbally. We just hang on to that, and we let it fester. 
And you know what? That just hurts us more than it does anyone else. When we just hang on to that. And so it's in our attitudes. <clears throat> we can compromise the truths of God's word by what we allow ourselves to watch or look at. We can compromise the truths of God's word by what we approve as culturally acceptable. And this, this comes into the church time and time again. Premarital sex. It's okay. We're going to get married. We're, we're living together now before marriage because, well, we're going to get married. Well, we're going to get divorced, and it's okay. And, you know, they talk about how divorce rates are higher within the church than they are outside of the church. I'm like, what's going on with that? Because we've compromised. Abortion. Abortion's okay. It's, it's the choice of the mother. Same-sex marriage. It's okay for them. I don't, it doesn't bother me at all. It should. Substance use or abuse. And the list could go on and on. We, we have to recognize when we have compromised the truths of God's word in order to embrace the things of this world. This whole theme this year has been about the pursuit of holiness. That's what God desires for us, is that we pursue holiness and righteousness. And too often we, we put that on the back burner and we pursue our own desires. So the first next step may be for you today, and that's to ask the Lord to show me how I have compromised the truths of his word and confess that to him. Maybe you just need to confess that to him today. Lord, here's where it's at. I already know. <laughs> I've already compromised as Lot is sitting in the gateway, he sees the two angels arrive and he approaches them. We see Lot's hospitality here. He bowed with his face to the ground. So he, he knew that they were different. He bowed his head and faced toward the ground. And he invites them to his home. At his home, he would make sure that their feet would be washed. He was also offering them a place to sleep and they would be able to leave early in the morning. And there was a reason why he's doing this. He knows the character of the people of Sodom. And at first, they refuse his hospitality. They're like, oh, no, no big deal. We don't mind spending the night in the square. <laughs> in most ancient cities, the square was a safe place to spend the night. And it was certainly safer than sleeping out in the countryside. All you have to do is think about the Good Samaritan story. And, you know, from going from place to place, the countryside was a very dangerous place. You know, the Good Samaritan stops and takes care of this traveler that's been wounded and injured. <clears throat> And so it should have been a safe place for them to sleep in the square, but it wasn't. It wasn't going to be. Lot strongly insisted that they stay with him. He was aware of the wickedness that took place after dark in the city square, especially when people from outside of town or out of town came and stayed there. This speaks of Lot's willingness to compromise his beliefs and witness in Sodom. He tolerated the wickedness instead of confronting it or fleeing from it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 tells us this. Flee from sexual immorality. All other, all other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, it says this, Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. And then James again in chapter 1, verse 14 says this, But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. So you see, compromise weakens our witness. That takes us back to the first principle again. God is pleased when we hold to the truths of his word and not compromise. And Lot provided the two angels with a meal that included unleavened bread. And after they had eaten, but before they had gone to bed, Lot's greatest fear for the two angels came true. Verses 4 to 9, we see unwelcome guests that arrive at Lot's house. Look at those verses with me if you would. This is what God's word says. 
Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside and, and uh, met, with, uh, met them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have, be, uh, they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. And they said, This fellow came here as an alien. Now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved toward, uh, forward to break down the door. Boy, they're just, uh, boy, the sin is just so rampant. There's nothing's going to stop them. And we see here that the way that this, uh, the description of those involved help us understand that the wickedness and sinfulness had permeated the entire city. It was not just one uh, a section of the city like the slums. It wasn't like just the poor people that were, were acting this way or the rich people that were acting this way. No, it was all of society. It was, just, uh, it was not just one age group or generation. It was both young and old. It, it was probably not even every man in the city since Lot has to go out to talk with his sons-in-law, but it's, a, it's most of them. And what we see here is they're wanting homosexual rape. The men call out to Lot and demand that he hand over the two men who came to him. And the reason they give us to Lot is so that they can have sex or relations with them. And it appears as though they would have, they would have sex with them whether the two men consented to it or not. That's what rape is. Waltke in his commentary says, The city is guilty here of two crimes, violation of guests and unnatural lust. The men of the city cry not just uh, for homosexuality, but for rape. Uh, they rape the mind, the emotions, the body, trivialize the sacred, and legitimatize the vulgar. Homosexuality is a capital offense in the Old Testament, as we see in Leviticus in chapters 18 and 20. The sin of Sodom's act is presumably the worst sort of sexual offense, homosexual gang rape. There are individuals who try to say that what's being talked about here in Genesis 19 is not homosexuality, but that they wanted to know these men. They just wanted to get to know them. Hey, come on out. We want to talk with you. That, no, we don't see that here. It's a weak attempt to trivialize the sacred and legitimatize the vulgar. It's, it is talking about homosexual rape here. And the Lord would not have destroyed Sodom because all the men wanted to just get to know the two visitors, Right? I want, to, I want to read to you two, two illustrations. And these are two people that uh, feel favorable towards homosexuality. But I want you to listen to their words and what they're saying. There is a movement within evangelicalism that's trying to argue that the Bible affirms or at least does not prohibit same-sex sexual relationships. But renowned progressive New Testament scholar Luke Timothy Johnson disagrees with this approach, even though he himself also holds an affirm affirming position. So he's like for homosexuality, and it's okay. Um, the Bible is saying that's okay. But he continues, or this is what he writes. I have little patience with efforts to make Scripture say something other than what it says though, uh, through appeals to linguistic or cultural subtleties. The exegetical situation is straightforward. We know what the text says. 
He continues, I think it's important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? What appeal? Uh, we appeal exp- explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience thousands of others have witnessed to, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is, in fact, to accept the way in which God has created us. He's like, that's what we're doing. Even within the church, we're like, well, this is the way God created them. And and so it's okay. Now, I like uh, the the person who shared this uh, illustration. They give a little side note. It says, while we disagree with Johnson's conclusions, we have to admit, um, admire his intellectual integrity. On this subject of same-sex sexual relationships, the Bible is clear. We know what the text says. The only question is whether that is the authority one chooses to live by. So are we going to live by the authority of Scripture, which is what I'm saying we need to do, that God's pleased when we hold to the truths of his word and not compromise, or are we going to hold to the authority of personal experience or the experience of thousands of others to say that it's okay? We have to hold to the truth of God's word. Let me go to the second illustration. Now, here's something you don't see every day. In the wake of Ireland's landslide victory to allow same-sex marriages in their country, journalist Matthew Paris, who calls himself a gay atheist, publicly laments the church's wishy-washiness. Paris writes, Even as a gay atheist, I winced to see the philosophical mess that religion, religious conservatives are making of their case. Is there nobody of any intellectual stature left in the church to frame the argument against Christians slide into just going with the flow of social and cultural changes? Paris continues his lament. Can't these Christians see that the moral basis of their faith cannot be sought in the pollster's arithmetic? Would it have occurred for a moment to Moses, let alone God, that he'd better defer that he'd be better that he'd better defer to Moloch worship because that's what most of the Israelites wanted to do? It must surely be implicit in the claim of any of the world's great religions that on questions of morality, a majority may be wrong. But this should be vividly evident to Christians in particular. They need only consider the fate of their Messiah and the persecution of adherence to the early church. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, says Paul. <clears throat> and then the side note from the person who shared this says, well, Jesus is the one who made that quote. Blessed are ye when men shall revile and persecute you. We have to look. Jesus Christ was not popular with the vast majority of the religious elite, right? They were trying to kill him, and they eventually did. And then even in the early church, there was all kinds of persecution that was going on. It wasn't what the culture of the day was pushing. This was new and different. So the church normally has two responses to same-sex attraction. It's two extremes. We either go with the flow of social and cultural change, and we're like, it's okay for them. I'm all right with that. Or we're condemning and ostracizing those who struggle with same-sex attraction. We don't have a balance. Tolerance doesn't work because tolerating someone else's viewpoint or beliefs means that I have to sacrifice my viewpoint or belief. I'm intolerant of my own viewpoint. So you see how tolerance doesn't work? Compromise weakens our witness. Jesus modeled the perfect balance. He called it love. 
We can love everyone regardless of their viewpoint or beliefs. Love does not require that we embrace, approve, or tolerate a viewpoint or belief that is contrary to God's word. And you see that the church has failed. A whole section of our society because we have either gone with the flow or condemned those who struggle with same-sex attraction. And neither of those extremes are approaching us with love. So the second next step might be for you today to repent of either legitimatizing or ostracizing those who struggle with same-sex attraction and choose to love as Jesus would. We're missing a whole section of our society that needs to know Jesus and the love of Jesus. And I can tell you stories of those who felt, feel ostracized from the church. While the crowd is pressing Lot to hand over the two men, he provides a compromise. Lot goes outside to talk with the men of Sodom, and he encourages them not to do this wicked thing. He then offers his two virgin daughters as a compromise. What's he thinking? Again, that takes us back to our big idea that compromise weakens our witness, and, and that's going to be evident when we get to the end of chapter 19. Because of this weakened uh, witness, we're going to see some more things going on that just should not have gone on at the end of chapter 19. This compromise was, going to satisfy, was not going to satisfy the sexual deviant desires of the crowd. Lot did not have any real influence over the crowd, even as one of their leaders. They saw him as a weak alien. And we see the crowd's response. We want what we want. Get out of our way. Who are you to judge us, you foreigner? You're no better than us. We'll treat you worse than the, these two men. And that takes us to principle number two. Our actions, when confronted with our sin, show our heart. The men of Sodom were not repentant. Instead, they retaliated against Lot. How do we react when someone confronts us about our sin? Are we repentant or retaliatory? Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17 tell us this. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Paul writing in, or uh, Luke, I'm sorry, writing in the book of Acts, says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that you, he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. That's Acts chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. James chapter 5, verse 16 says this, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. God desires for us to repent. But sometimes we retaliate. Gangle and Bramer um, say this, No longer were their shameful sins tolerated by a permissive society as something people had a right to practice if they pleased. It had gone far beyond that. Now the people were in open, 
aggressive, insistent force in the city with which none dare interfere, for their behavior was not looked upon by the sodomites as criminal but as constitutional. They had the constitutional right to indulge their passion when and where they wished, and any attempt to thwart them uh, could be expected to lead to open riot in the city. That's Phillips. And then Gango and Brammer say this, the parallel with modern Western culture should chill us to the bone. This is our right. And if you don't agree with us, we're going to riot to get our way. Does that sound familiar at all? Like to our modern culture. Our natural inclination is to defend ourselves. And it's not pleasant to be confronted by our sin. We all know our greatest temptation, and so does Satan. And when it is exposed, there is anger. But I think relief as well. That leads us to the third next step today, and that's to ask the Lord to help me humbly repent when confronted with my sin. And the crowd pushed forward against Lot so they could reach the door and break it down. Lot will soon find out, these two men, who they really are. The third point this morning is this, saved by the guests. Look at verses 10 to 14. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we're going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against this people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, Hurry, get out of this place, because the Lord is about to destroy it. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. So the two men opened the door just enough to grab Lot and pull him back inside. And then we see this, the miraculous salvation. The two angels then strike the crowd of men with blindness so they could not find the door. Uh, there would probably have been a courtyard with a gate between the, the crowd and the actual front door, and perhaps the crowd's now groping around in the courtyard trying to find the front door without success. And then the two angels ask Lot if he has any other family in the city, and he encourages them to get out of the city because they're going to destroy it. And so we see here the mercy of God. God is merciful. It's a third principle. He's allowing Lot the opportunity to warn his other family members. And again, that just shows his mercy. But we also see that God is just in this because while God is merciful, he's also just. And the two angels have witnessed enough. They've proven that there are not even ten righteous people in Sodom. So destruction is inevitable. And Lot now knew that these two men were more than men. They were the Lord's emissaries. And we see this warning. Lot went to his sons-in-law. They were presumably engaged to his two virgin daughters. He tells them to get out of the city quickly because the Lord was about to destroy it. His sons didn't uh, take him seriously and thought he was joking. And once again, we see the the compromise had weakened Lot's witness. His two sons-in-law thought he was joking. They probably had not seen Lot modeling a life fully committed to the Lord. He was a righteous man that had allowed the enticements of of his world to have priority in his life. He had compromised in order to remain living in Sodom, which caused his witness to be weak. And the same can be said of us. When we compromise in our world, our witness will also be weak. Those around us at work, in our neighborhood, or our friends will not listen to our warnings about God's coming destruction. They just think we're joking. Even some of our own family will not listen to our warnings. 
And so that leads us back to principle number one. God is pleased when we hold to the truths of his word and not compromise. And to our final next step today, and that's to hold on to the truths of God's word and not compromise. Maybe that's the step you're ready to take today. A couple of questions as we review. Where have you compromised the truths of God's word? And will you confess those before the Lord today? Do you love those who are struggling with same-sex attraction, or have you legitimatized or ostracized them? Have you, um, how do you react when confronted with your sin? Do you repent or do you retaliate? And are you holding to the truths of God's word, or are you compromising? As a body of believers, we need to hold to the truths of God's word no matter what. We need to model love instead of acceptance or rejectance, rejection. Sorry. We need to model repentance instead of retaliation when confronted with our sin. I want to read this final illustration to you from Kierkegaard. In a sermon, the Reverend Ethan Magnus quoted the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard who told this parable. A crowded theater hosted a variety show with various acts in it. Each act was more fantastic than the one prior, so it created louder and louder applause from the audience. Suddenly, a clown rushed onto the stage and said, I apologize for this interruption, but I regret to inform you that our theater is on fire. You need to leave right away, and in an orderly fashion. But the audience thought he was part of the act. So they laughed and applauded. They thought he was uh, very committed to the role. But the clown again implored them, uh, implored them that they needed to leave right away or they would get seriously injured, maybe even die. And again they greeted him with loud and thunderous applause. At last he could do no more, and so he left the building and the people were destroyed. And Kierkegaard concludes this in this sobering way. Our age will go down in fiery destruction, not to the sound of mourning, but to, but to applause and cheering. I, I, I can see it. Abortion's great. Woman gets the choice. Woohoo! Same-sex marriage, that's, that's great. You get to love the person that you really love. You become a... Yay! Yay! And, and the list goes on and on, right? And they're going to a fiery destruction. And part of it is because we've compromised our witness, right? We've compromised, and we're not telling them the truths of God's word so that they can turn and be saved. I don't want that to be on my conscience. I hope you don't either. As we think about that and allow the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts and minds, would you just bow your heads with me as the worship team comes? Lord, we come to you today. And once again, we just confess to you that We've compromised so many different ways, Lord God, and we repent of that today. We ask that you would bring forgiveness through your Holy Spirit that works within our hearts and minds. Lord, would we, would we just hold to the truths of your word above everything else? Would your word be our handbook for life, Lord God? Would we turn to it for truths? And not be caught up in what the culture says, what the majority says. Lord God, help us to be faithful minorities. We just commit ourselves to you now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.